0: Well, my name is Jeff. If we haven't met, thanks for being with us on this holiday weekend. I know a lot of our church is camping this weekend, which they picked good weather weekend to do it, right? Um, But we're together, and we are going to continue our series on Babylon. Um, And I thought I'd start—I got in a conversation with some people about soft water systems, and it was just kind of—it made me think, and it was kind of entertaining for me, and I thought it would be a good little segue into our sermon this morning. I grew up—I only knew of hard water. I didn't even know that soft water existed. I didn't have a consistent experience of soft water until my mother-in-law, Kami's mom, moved to a new house where they had soft water. And I remember it was after we were married, we would go for the holidays, and Kamy and I would always comment about how we were showering, and it just felt like slimy. Were we, were we getting the soap off or not? And then we move here to DeKalb County, and I know many of us, I've been told that my house where I live needs soft water for the pipes. It's, I trust people on that, so our house has soft water. And somewhere over the past of this, the last six years of living in this house here in DeKalb County where we live now, soft water has become normal to me. So now if we go to Kami's mom's house and I shower, it feels like my home. And when I go to my mom's house where she's lived since I was in kindergarten, it feels strange and I find this amusing. What happened? At what point did hard water become strange and soft water become normal? I don't know what the point was, but I know it happened because I now experience water differently. Now, I'm not trying to say anything. I, I really don't have a strong opinion on hard or soft water, and I don't know what is better. <laughs> um, but, but if you can hang with my metaphor and my analogy. We've been talking about how you and I are raised in Babylon. It's not our true home. We know our true home is in Christ. We're awaiting The new Jerusalem, heaven to come down from earth, for earth and heaven to be reunited, to be one. But in the meantime, we live as exiles in Babylon. And part of what we've been talking about, and I've been encouraged as I I hear people, and we'll we'll even do a little bit more of this, but I've tried to give us language and categories. And I've, I've been really enjoying, even in my pastoral counseling, people are using the language to name their experience. But Babylon is where, one way of talking about Babylon, Babylon is where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. And what we're trying to do, as Terry accurately prayed, was we're we're trying to be like Jesus and live like Jesus. What we're trying to do is to be invited and welcomed into the kingdom of God so that sin seems strange. And righteousness seems normal. We might not even always know when that moment of transition happens. When well, hard water is not normal anymore, we don't know when it happens, but it happens. So we're going to look at Peter. I'm going to say a few more things, but we're going to look at Peter because his journey really is like that. He, he undergoes a radical transformation, but it's really hard to pinpoint exactly. If you track through the Gospels into the book of Acts and even Peter's letter, it's like where, where exactly. You know, Paul, there's this obvious Damascus Road experience, but not so much for Peter. That's why, again and again, I'm drawn to the story of Peter. But before we get to Peter's story, I want to revisit some things that I introduced earlier in the series and, and reacclimate ourselves with some language that will be helpful as we go through the text. But I wanted to come back to this idea of how you and I pick up tools in Babylon and part of our temptation is to to maintain a Babylonian identity and to try to use the tools of Babylon to build the kingdom of God and it just doesn't it doesn't really work but it's all we know and so we try really hard you all know the saying when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail and if you bring if, if the only tool you bring from Babylon is a hammer you're just hammering you got a machete, you're just hacking away at everything, right? But maybe, just maybe, I mean, we'll talk about, we'll even read, maybe, maybe Jesus wants to take some of these tools that we picked up in Babylon and transform them. <laughs> so instead of having tools that bring about death and destruction, we have tools that cultivate life and community and love. You don't bring about God's way in the world acting in ungodly ways. And so, first of all, we have to have the awareness to recognize, oh, I'm holding a hammer. <laughs> and, then, and then either one of two things. Either one, we, we put it down and pick up a tool of the kingdom. We'll talk about picking up the cross this morning. Or maybe, just maybe, because because God is so powerful and Jesus is so creative, maybe, just maybe, he will transform <laughs> some of these tools of death. That's what he did with the cross. It was a tool of death and destruction, and he's made it a symbol of forgiveness, (laughs) because that's what Jesus does. And as we continue this morning, as we talk about tools of Babylon, I, I wrote down how I want you to think about it this morning. And again, I want you to be asking, as we've been doing throughout this whole series, asking the Holy Spirit to help you, because we're all different. I mean, we have some similarities. We all live in Babylon together, but we're all so different, and we come from different homes, and maybe we didn't. All, we grew up in different places. We've all picked up different tools from Babylon along the way. But I want you to be even wrestling with the Holy Spirit, the tools of Babylon. When I say that, the things that you use, To try to gain control of your world, and this is really important, at the expense of others. I think you and I have a lot of tools that we've picked up in Babylon where we try to gain control of our world at the expense of others. That's a key part of this right here. There's things that we do, tactics we employ, levers that we pull to, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, and we'll continue, to push others down so that we can lift ourselves up. That's the way of Babylon. Ways that we try to use people, right? People are no longer an end in themselves. In Babylon, someone to be loved, they're they're someone to be used for my purposes. Can I manipulate you to use you for my pleasures? And again, be asking the Holy Spirit, what are these tools in my life so that I can gain control at the expense of others? Or another way of coming at this, this is language that we've been using throughout the series that, I I, again, I've heard you start to make these connections in your lives, and it's really exciting for me to see the way God is doing this. But we've talked about the demonic and the satanic, and It'll be important again for our text this morning, but we've talked about the demonic as that which brings chaos into our lives. The demonic comes and creates disorder. It's it's darkness and it threatens our undoing. But it's been important for us to recognize the demonic, what's creating chaos in our world in Babylon, because we also need to be able to recognize the satanic, because the satanic's a little different. It's crafty. The satanic comes along and it is a false light in the darkness of your chaos. The satanic comes along to rescue you from disorder with false order. It's not the real order of the kingdom. It's a false order. But we run to it because the false order looks safer and more secure than the disorder, even though it's just a different path to death and destruction. It's Satan's way of exercising his dominion over us. And let me get a little bit more personal here, and I'll use language that I use in our discipleship pathway. But you can think about the demonic as those voices in your head or those voices all around you in a variety of ways that say, you don't have enough. You're falling apart. You don't have enough. You're not going to make it. You don't have enough money, enough resources. You don't have enough friends. You don't have enough. Or those voices that come to you at night, you you haven't done enough. Look at you. Failure. You haven't done enough. What are you wasting your life? Or those voices that echo in your, you're not enough. What would your mother say? What would your grandfather say? You're not enough. Who do you think you Those are the voices of the demonic that come and just attack our soul. Now, it's kind of nice. The song we just sang, Who You Say I Am, we sang the good news that counters those lies. We talk about those good news points about who we are in Christ a lot. But I want you to think about what the satanic does in response to the disorder of the demonic here. The satanic comes with a false order, let's call it consumerism or materialism. You buy this and you'll be enough. You don't think you have enough, but if you buy this, you'll be enough. But really, when will you ever buy enough to make you? I mean, it's just part of the false order. It's the lie, it's it's what the satanic does to rescue you from what you're feeling. Or some of you, this will resonate with you, perfect the way you do this and you'll solve it forever. <laughs> you won't need a new checklist tomorrow because you'll finally have figured out a way to make this problem go away forever, right? But none of us will ever perfect it. We live in a broken world, but we keep, we keep running to the false order of the satanic thinking, yes, or if I can just get everybody to do it the way I want them to do it, <laughs> fall in line, right? Perfect it. You'll fix it. Or, be who Babylon wants you to be and you'll be enough. It's the loud voice all around you circulating everywhere. Just be who Babylon wants you to be and you'll be enough. Be who, this per- be who your boss wants you to be, who your parent, be who this person says you should be and you'll be enough. It's all just crafty ways that the satanic comes to us to rescue us with a false order from the disorder. Well, as I said, we're going to journey with Peter, and we're going to be primarily, we're just going to look at this interesting little, I think it's an interesting little way of thinking about one way of laying down these tools from Babylon. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. If you want to turn there, we're going to pick up in verse 31, but I do want to set the stage Because again, we're trying to to feel out the difference between the kingdom of God and life in Babylon. And we're coming out, if you you read beginning in verse 1 and you follow through to get to verse 31, we're coming out of the story of the Last Supper where Jesus is instituting communion. The breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. And I want to tell we're not going to read those verses, but I want to even just set us up to hear what's going to follow, because the first hint that we're dealing with a different kind of kingdom is the way Jesus even ties language to this act of bread and wine. If Jesus had been bringing about the next iteration of Babylon, he would have torn the bread and poured the wine and said, this is my enemy's body, break it for me. And this is my enemy's blood. Shed it for me. Put them down. Hack them down so that we can lift ourselves up. (laughs) That's what Jesus would have said if he was like Caesar before him, like Pharaoh, like every iteration of Babylon we encounter in the Bible. But of course, you're here, you probably know that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, no, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. In other words, it's this thing that we've been talking about these last three weeks. Jesus is laying himself down to lift us up. So different. And even as I say that, I I bet there's something something in me that just feels the weight of Babylon just fall off my shoulders. How different life would be if I don't have to crawl over everyone to get to the top, but I can follow Jesus down this narrow road of love where I lay myself down and lift others up. There's something that, it it feels like I was made for that. (laughs) I was made in the image of a God of love. Well, let's get finally here to the text. Thanks for your patience. Verse 31 of Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. Simon Peter. Satan, here's the satanic, he's come, he's asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded, Jesus says, in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. But you're going to fail, and you're going to need to repent, so when you have repented and turned to me again, when you've come home, then I have work for you to do, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to pause here because anytime I come across a passage in the Gospels, and there's actually quite a few where Jesus is talking about Satan and here in the context of Peter, it takes me back to this really climactic moment, specifically in Matthew and Mark, the way they write their Gospels. It's kind of like the center where things begin to change. But earlier in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 16, we have this amazing encounter where I think, Jesus is asking the most important question that you and I will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with an amazing answer. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my, listen to this, my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. For the sake of our series, you could say it this way, uh, Peter, you've been living as an exile of, in Babylon and you've created a, a way of understanding things that make sense. It's common sense to you, but what you're learning about me is from above. It's a wisdom from beyond Babylon and it comes to you from the Father. You didn't figure this out on your own. God has revealed this to you and you've got a little interesting exchange between peter and jesus and then jesus is going to go forth to say okay again my kingdom comes differently it's not it's it's for this world but it's not of this world and my kingdom is coming into this world and i'm going to suffer and i'm going to die and then in 3 days i'm going to be raised again and again in the common sense of babylonian wisdom to peter that makes no sense peter understands that means you're going to die you're going to lose i don't lose i'm a winner And he says, not on my watch, not if I have anything to say about it, Jesus, not under my control. And what does Jesus say in verse 23 to Peter? Get away from me, Satan. Peter, that's a false order in the midst of this disorder. Don't go there. You are a dangerous trap to me. And again, he says this, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view. You've been living in Babylon too long. I need you to see this from God's point of view. I need you to understand the way of your heavenly father. Don't be so proud. Don't be so arrogant. Don't try to be in control of the situation. There's so much more here. Well, let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 33 of Luke 22. Peter said, Lord, I am ready. And I love Peter. I mean, I love Peter because I identify with Peter, but I also am horrified by his story because I know it's my story. Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. He says it and he thinks he means it, but he only means it, again, on his own terms. He doesn't mean it if it's not on his terms. We're going to find that out as we keep reading in Luke chapter 22, But Peter's in a dangerous place, and this is one of the things I I hope is happening for us as we go through this series. This level of certainty with Peter is, is really scary because he's wrong. He's wrong about the kingdom of God, and he's wrong about himself, and he's too arrogant, and he's proud, and he doesn't know he's wrong. And that's why it's so scary. I mean, we do some of our worst justifications of employing the means of Babylon when we are so certain we're right and heaven knows we're wrong. And those are scary moments because we're blind. That's why we need grace. But we need to be, I mean, we've been talking about humility the last three weeks. We need to be a humble church. Or we're going to make mistakes like Peter. Verse 34 Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. You're so sure of yourself, but I, I, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. I mean, I know as Peter Peter probably didn't even know how to register those words. He's so sure he's right. There's no way Jesus could be ready. I mean, there is a way of saying Peter trusts himself more than he trusts Jesus right here. Which maybe is another way of finding out that you and I are a little too Babylonian. In certain, when, when, you, when we trust ourselves and our own common sense more than we trust Jesus in what has been revealed to us from the heart of God. <laughs> Dangerous places to be in where Peter is. Verse 35, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, we had everything we needed, Jesus. All right, but but now Jesus says, take your money and a traveler's bag. And if you don't have a sword, that's what I want to talk about. It's such a fascinating passage. Why the sword? What's up with the sword? If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He's going to quote from Isaiah 53 where Jesus is identifying with this suffering servant in the prophecy of Isaiah, somebody who's going to suffer on behalf of the many. He, has, he was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. And the sword even catches their attention. They get excited. Lord, look, we've got two swords among us. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, you guys don't get it. That's enough. Because there's a couple things going on here. There's two possible things. If you just hang in Luke's gospel and as we keep reading, there is a sense that Jesus is going to be crucified for be, he's, he's, he's labeled on the cross as the king of the Jews. So he's crucified as an insurrectionist. Rome really only crucified those who challenged Caesar as insurrectionists, rebels, revolutionaries, or runaway slaves. So there's a sense that as you read through Luke, there's a sense that Jesus is saying, we, we need a couple swords because they're going to perceive us. We're not going to use them, but, but they'll, they'll perceive us as rebels and that'll fulfill the prophecy as it lays out. But there's also a way of reading this. If you read this alongside the Gospel of John, I think it even makes a little bit more sense to me in a sense because in John's Gospel, in chapters 14, 15, and 16 in the upper room, John's going to give us a little bit more detail from that conversation. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to leave you, and it's going to be really hard for you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. The world is going to reject you because it rejected me, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be okay. Jesus says that twice. And I think this is kind of Luke's summary. Look, before all this stuff was unfolding, you know, before Palm Sunday, everywhere we went, we were welcomed and people celebrated us. But disciples, things are changing right now. And from now on, you, you, can't, you, you gotta travel. You're, gonna travel. you're gonna travel with the things that everyone else travels with. You haven't had to, but now you have to. It's, it's kind of some of the things. But I think we're even gonna go a step further in discipleship and what Jesus is doing here. But this is playing out. This is what's happening. So then you have the prayer in Gethsemane and and Jesus really, you know, not my will, but yours be done. And we'll jump to verse 47 of Luke chapter 22. Famous part of the story. Jesus, as he's he's talking to the disciples, a crowd approach led by Judas, one of the 12, the one who betrays him. And Judas walks up and greets Jesus with a kiss and Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, and and this is kind of interesting, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And think about this. There's 12 of them, well, 11 without Judas, 12 with Jesus. Two swords, 12 guys. And they asked for permission. Should we fight? We brought the swords. But Peter Ever impetuous, (laughs) ever impatient, doesn't wait for an answer. It says, one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. One of them, now I'll show you in a second, we know it was Peter. Peter insisted, apparently, that he be one of the disciples carrying one of these two swords. And he responds, he's been trained in Babylon, he's been trained, and I... I mean, he hacks off the ears probably because he's aiming for the whole head, and he's a fisherman. He's not good with a sword. But again, it's like a kind of a grotesque, but honest, like he's trying to hack this guy down to lift himself up. That's what he's doing. And I want to point out here, just because I think this is one of the cool things with the Gospels, Luke is writing a more historical account and he does what most historians would do. He just mentions the, 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 the high priest slave. I mean, that's about as far as you go in the first century. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, I want to jump to John chapter 18, just so you can see this is Peter. But there's a little bit more, uh, I think, cool stuff that unfolds. John 18, verse 10 Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest slave. <laughs> and I just got, I get, you get, you get kind of, you see a name and you start to think about it. In my own gospel studies, a couple things come out when you, when you come across something like this. One, if a, if a name is mentioned of somebody who's not some main historical figure, it usually means that that person would be known to the community that the gospel is being written to. In other words, there's all likelihood that Malchus, and it makes sense, right, that Malchus actually became a Christian. (laughs) Peter hacks off his ear. He comes as an enemy to Jesus. Peter hacks off his ear, tries to kill him, and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not my kingdom. That's Babylon. And he literally, like, picks up this ear and puts it back on and heals the guy and so the man that, that Malchus is coming to attack is actually healing him and protecting him. I'm sure that did something to Malchus. Began to realize that there's something different about Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Who do people say that he is? You know. So it's likely that Malchus became a Christian. But it's also, I mean, if you read first century literature, nobody names slaves in first century literature. And so we're we're now at another place where the kingdom of God is radically different, where everyone has value because we're all equally saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just cool. Verse 11, but Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. That's where that tool belongs. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? I am embodying the will of the Father. This is who God is. Let me do what I've come to do. You know, Peter said he was willing to follow Jesus to prison and death. And so he draws the sword, and he knows what he's risking when he does that. He's, he's, again, that's why I said he's willing to go to prison and death on his terms in what makes sense to him. But Jesus is going about this in a way that Peter's not comfortable with. He's not yet willing to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus in the Jesus way. He wants to follow Jesus in the way he wants to do things. Or as we see again and again with Peter, he wants to tell Jesus what to do. (laughs) But that's not really following Jesus. And again, I think, living in Babylon, you and I need to be careful that we're not telling Jesus what to do, but we're listening to him and following what he says. Peter's willing to fight with Jesus or flee with Jesus, but not willing to stand there with Jesus and trust Jesus. He's willing to take up the sword. He's unwilling to take up the cross. Because, again here, I doubt that many of you own a sword, (laughs) but the sword here really does represent Peter's way of controlling the situation. And it may be best to say this morning that Jesus allowed Peter to arm himself so that he could disarm him. I mean, maybe that's why the whole story is in here. Arm yourself so I can disarm you and show you that you're not Babylonian anymore. And the kingdom doesn't come that way. One test of discipleship is the choice to take up the sword or take up the cross. Now you and I, we balk, we hesitate understandably at the way of the cross because the cross is the way of loss. Saying no to our own agendas, our own desires. Taking up the cross means dying along the way. And that sounds crazy if you live in Babylon. Jesus is inviting you to say no to self and take up your cross and follow him. But we begin to take up our cross and we, we notice that it looks a lot like death. And it's filled with loss. But part of following Jesus is this continual choice of self-denial, losing things we really want or domination, having things the way I want them. And you really do have to choose. At some point, you have to choose between the two. Because one accommodates the world as it is, the Babylonian way, and the other embraces kingdom come, which believes that, yes, the cross is part of the journey, but it leads to an empty tomb, and it leads to resurrection life that is, that is the true order. It's not this satanic false order that's filled with lives. It's true life. It's flourishing. It's peace. It's purpose. It's hope. It's joy. That's the kingdom. And then this little section ends with verses 52 and 53. Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary? Again, I know we got two swords. We're so scary. Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? <laughs> Been there every day. But this, this I know why. Because this is your moment. The time when the power of darkness reigns. The time when the power of darkness reigns. It's the moment when all the powers of sin and evil and injustice that have enslaved God's world joined together to destroy Jesus. This scene may be the starkest contrast in the Gospels between the way of the world and the way of God's kingdom. Because the people surrounding Jesus, this crowd that has come, they're they're driven by anger and power and hatred, and they're ready to use violent force. And they're guided by Judas, the betrayer, who is motivated by greed. And even Jesus' own disciples are now going to be consumed by fear. They're going to reject what he's taught them and they're going to abandon him to save themselves. I mean, the sword is a metaphor, but as you dig deeper into the tools of Babylon and what gets used to manipulate us and what we use to manipulate others so that we can gain control even at their expense, are the things you see at play here. Anger, and power, and fear, and hatred, and greed, and lies, and violence, and coercion, and yet... And yet even at that hour when darkness reigned, Jesus showed that the light of God's kingdom had come into the world and that the darkness would not overcome it. (laughs) There's There's a false light that comes from the satanic, but there's a true light really broke into the world on Christmas morning and has never ceased to shine. It overwhelms the darkness. At this darkest moment, when his own followers had chosen the way of Babylon, Jesus reminded them of his more excellent way. He knelt down, he picked up the severed ear, and he healed his enemy. And Jesus healed the guard to offer a glimpse of his kingdom amid the evil that was swirling like a hurricane all around them. And again, we are given an invitation and something in our heart says, yes, that is a more beautiful way. That is a more all lovely way. I want that. I want that. I was in a conversation with a couple people in our small group this week. Two people had this experience where, whether through working with the police or whether through working at a bank where they had to know real money from counterfeit money. And it was interesting. People I've talked to who have ever been trained on identifying counterfeits. They'll all tell you they never show you a counterfeit. They only show you the authentic thing and you study it and you know everything about the authentic thing and there's a firm belief, a a solid confidence that if you know what an authentic bill looks like, you will always be able to identify the counterfeit. True with the kingdom. If you understand, if you listen to Jesus, if you pay attention to Jesus, if you focus in on Jesus, you hone in on Jesus, you build your life around Jesus, you actually believe him, trust him, live his commandments, breathe the Sermon on the Mount, you will know what the kingdom is like and you'll be able to identify the counterfeits of Babylon again and again and again. Now, this doesn't feel right. I mean, I know when hard water felt normal, but now it feels weird. I, sin now seems strange and righteousness is normal. That's not the way of Jesus. And you begin to see it. and You know, in church, that's why we do this together, because we help each other learn. We challenge one another. We encourage one another. We fail and we lift each other up and we keep going. And we learn more and more about this love and mercy and forgiveness. Christ-like peacemakers exchange their tools of death for tools that cultivate life and healing. We don't push others down to lift ourselves up. We lay ourselves down to lift others up. And I want to go one more step. It'd probably be best, actually, if I finished right there and you'd like me more if I finish right there. But I want to go one more step because it's important, and it's something that took me a while to learn. And I say this a lot, so if if you've been across here for a while, it's not going to surprise you, but we still need to hear this. We're going to keep reading in Luke 22, and you're going to get to this famous scene that we just read Jesus predict, where Peter denies Jesus three times. It's Peter's reckoning. He's so confident and so sure until he finally realizes how wrong he is. How much he doesn't know. And I want you to see how it ends at this point. I mean, how it ends for Peter is amazing. I mean, Jesus restores him, and he, we'll talk about he, he becomes the leader of the early church. He descends to greatness is what happens. But to get there, he has to shed some tears. I mean, that's the part you don't want to hear. I know it's the part you don't want to hear because you've been living in Babylon as long as I have. (laughs) And you think tears are weak and they're unnecessary. They're wasteful. No, 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 no. Folks, if you are going to be redemptive healing agents in a broken world, you're going to have to shed some tears. Luke 22, verse 60. The final denial. Man, I don't know what you are talking about. I don't know this man. And while he's speaking, the rooster crows. And at that moment, Peter's in a place where he can make eye contact with Jesus. And they make eye contact. And and the Spirit of God brings to mind what Jesus has said before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny me three times that you even know me. Verse 62, and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. It's important. It's necessary. Peter told Jesus he was ready to go to prison and, if need be, to death with Jesus. He was ready to fight. He was ready to die. And when Jesus rebuked Peter and told him to put up his sword, that the kingdom of God doesn't come this way, doesn't come by that way, Peter becomes disillusioned and he begins to kind of trail behind Jesus. But now at a distance, very much at a distance, he's backing off from Jesus. Until, again, in the gentle, beautiful ways that Jesus personally meets each one of us and invites us in in his revelation, Jesus then again reminds Peter of what he's already told him. And Peter finally has a moment where he's honest and humble enough to see who he really is. I know we don't want these moments, but we need them. I mean, if, if we're going to be a church that talks about confessing and repenting, we've got to actually do it. It's great to talk about how other people need to confess and repent. I know that. But if we're going to be a place of change, we've got to repent. And we've got to shed some tears for the ways that we've been more Babylonian than kingdom. It's Peter's journey. It's our journey. It's, it's just a journey. But the tears are where the change happens. It's, the transformation happens there. Peter cannot climb up a ladder to being the chief apostle. He has to go down to become an apostle. He cannot push others down or hack people down in order to become great. I mean, Peter, like all the others in his day, and like you and I all too often, wrongly assumed that what Jesus was building was the next iteration of Babylon. Even though Jesus tried to tell them again and again, what I'm bringing is nothing like Babylon. It just takes us a long time to hear it. Because what we've been saying is Babylon tells you it's the great ones who climb to the top who lead. Jesus says, no, 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 my church is going to be led by those who are broken and put back together in a new way. Peter is undone so he can be remade. Before you can be remade or renewed or enter into new life, you have to be undone. You've got to repent. But Peter, he, he sheds these bitter tears and he is drained of his poisonous pride. All that pride that was going to ruin him and prevent him from becoming who God wants him to be, who God has made him to be. It's purged, it's cleansed, the poison comes out. And in his tears, Peter is on his way down to becoming an apostle. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And if you and I are going to arrive at the place where God is redeeming us, remaking us, and then using us for his good in the world, then we're going to weep too. It is not an accident that there are countless prayers of lament in the Bible because God is encouraging us to break our hearts over what is wrong with us and what is wrong with the world and then to cry out to him to save us and redeem us because we can't do it on our own. And that when we try to do it on our own, we're always seizing control for our benefit at the expense of others. And Jesus, that's not how the kingdom comes. That's not how the kingdom comes. And as you and I get honest about the way we're using and manipulating people around us, we should shed some tears and cry out to God in our brokenness. And he will meet us. He met Peter in a very, very personal way, three times restoring him. And Peter becomes the the leader, the chief apostle in the early church. And God will meet us through our tears, and he will restore us, and he will redeem us, and then he will use us, and we will have a deeper understanding of the pain that is all around us. And we will be agents of healing. The tears are necessary, but they aren't the end, right? In the book of Revelation, the Father is going to personally wipe away every single tear. And I love that because it doesn't even mean that we just stop crying. No, there's things in this broken world that bring tears, but God will wipe it away. and, And it will bring healing and wholeness and restoration. Tears are not the end of the story. The tears are temporary, but the transformation is eternal. Tears won't go on forever, but the transformation worked in your life will go on forever. And I just wanted to close. I'm going to pray here, but I just wanted to read to you from Isaiah chapter 2. It's such a familiar passage. Micah actually has almost the exact same thing in his prophetic book. But this is a vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Really, we could say concerning the new Jerusalem, when the true king comes. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all and the most important place on earth. Now, we know why. Because our king made himself the lowest of all so that his people could be the highest of all. The way down is the way up. And it will be raised above the other hills and and people from all over the world will stream there to worship because there's no one like Jesus. You show me another king who lays down his life like Jesus does. And in the watching world, many nations will come and say, let us worship. Let's go to the mountain here. He's going to teach us his ways. His ways are different than the ways of Babylon, and they're better, and they lead to true life. We want to walk in his path. Will you show us? We're lost. Will you show us his ways? For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. The word will go out from Jerusalem. And then verse 4. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. And they will, here we go, a redeeming view of the hammer. They will hammer these swords into plowshares. These instruments we've created in Babylon to try to gain control for ourselves at the expense of others will be turned into tools that cultivate and bring life. Spears will be turned into pruning hooks. And then we'll know the peace of God. Nations will no longer fight again. No more war, because the peace that only Jesus Christ can bring will finally cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Amen. All right, let's pray for that. God, we want that. We want that. I mean, sometimes we're so we're so caught up in Babylon that we. And our imaginations have been numbed and stunted. And so we forget to ask. But your kingdom is breaking into this world. And so we want to ask for that kind of peace. Now we recognize we won't see it everywhere until you return, Jesus. But we also believe because we trust your testimony. We trust what we encounter in the New Testament that your church is your idea and 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 these are the outposts of your kingdom. And so if your peace is to be seen and experienced and tasted and touched anywhere in this world it's among us. So teach us your ways. Teach us your ways in such a compelling and beautiful way that people around us you guys live differently. It's not Babylon. There's something different. Who is this teacher? Who is this leader? Who is your true Lord? And we want to tell people about you, Jesus. Well, we're going to need your help. We're going to need your strength. We're going to need your comfort. We're going to need your courage if we're going to be honest and and face some of our tears and our fears. But we are going to be a church that believes that it's possible. And we're not going to be afraid of our pain because we know you can heal it. We're going to go on this journey. We're going to be a garden, a garden where life is blooming in us and all around us. We ask for this in your name, Jesus, because we believe that you do this kind of work. You, you heal even your enemy. You can heal us. In your name we pray, amen.